Do you by chance remember the name Johnny Favorite? Remember the name Johnny? No, I don't think so. You never knew him? Am I supposed to know him? He was a crooner before the war, quite famous in his way. Have you ever wondered what a movie would have been like had different actors been cast? It's a well-known fact that both Will Smith and Leonardo DiCaprio turned down the role of Neo in The Matrix. Kevin Costner said no to playing Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption, and John Travolta didn't see the potential of Forrest Gump. Julia Roberts walked away from not just The Blind Side and Sleepless in Seattle, but also Shakespeare in Love, while in turn, Gwyneth Paltrow said no to Titanic, Legally Blonde, and Gangs of New York. But what about directors who said no? Steven Spielberg was offered The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was eventually directed by David Fincher, who himself had turned down Catch Me If You Can, which was directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg had asked Martin Scorsese to direct Schindler's List, and then a couple of years later, Spielberg offered American Beauty to Terry Gilliam. But that was only after Gilliam had said no to Forrest Gump. Did you see him? No. Why not? Because it would have been difficult. Why? Why? Because he's not there. Your Johnny Favorite uh, walked out of Sarah Harvest Dodge 12 years ago, wearing his best suit and a new face wrapped in bandages with a headache. He took off with some guy called Kelly and a girl. You notice uh, Kelly? Well, it seems that this guy Kelly paid off some bent doctor called Fowler to pinch hit for your guy all these years. He's been covering up for him ever since. I mention all of that because, although Alan Parker directed Angel Heart in 1987, he was not the first director attached to the project. It all began in 1978 with the publication of the novel Falling Angel. Written by William Hortzberg, it's a psychological horror-slash-detective story set in 1950s Harlem. Even before it was published, it was optioned by producer Robert Evans. At the time, Evans was one of the hottest producers in Hollywood, and his credits included Chinatown, Marathon Man and Black Sunday which was about a terrorist attack that takes place during the Super Bowl. John Frankenheimer had directed Black Sunday, and he had previously made a popular sequel to The French Connection. And before that, in the 1960s, he had made the brilliant Manchurian Candidate. But by the late 70s, Frankenheimer was losing his battle against alcoholism, so he left the project. And then in came, of all people, Robert Redford. Redford was the biggest star of that decade, and he hired Hortzberg to do a couple of drafts of the script. But despite Redford's colossal box office power, what deterred every studio from fully backing the project was the novel's twisted and downbeat ending. And since the twisted ending was the strongest thing in the story, all the studios passed and Redford walked away. There's a lot of religion going around with this thing. It's very weird. And I don't understand it. It's ugly. They say there's just enough religion in the world to make men hate one another, but not enough to make them love. Oh, is that what they say? I'll tell you something, Mr. Saifier, there uh, wasn't too much love around for Johnny Favorite. All right, that guy was bad luck, and it's starting to rub off on me. Later on, Hortzberg was approached by Brian De Palma. De Palma had sprung to fame with his film of Stephen King's novel, Carrie, and had consolidated it with his Hitchcockian thriller, Dressed to Kill. So, to Hortzberg, De Palma seemed a good fit. Only, De Palma didn't want to adapt Falling Angel. He was aiming to make a movie about the legendary escapologist Harry Houdini. Now, a movie about Harry Houdini, directed by Brian De Palma, is something I'd really like to see. Unfortunately, it never got made. 
but one day over lunch De Palma explained to Hortzberg how he would film Falling Angel. I'd shoot the whole thing in New Orleans, he said. It's set in Harlem, countered Hortzberg. Forget that, said De Palma. Go to New Orleans. It's got the look, it's got the jazz, it's got the voodoo. Hortzberg politely shuffled with the salad and the moment passed. Now, I'm gonna need your exact date of birth. Sure. Okay, I was uh, born February 14. 1918. It was Valentine's Day. How curious. I used to know a boy who was born on that exact same date. Hey, maybe we could pull your friend's chart and save ourselves some time. I don't think so, Mr. Angel. Every person's very different. I don't think you'd like his chart. Several years later, Hortzberg found himself working in England for Ridley Scott. Scott was back in home turf, having suffered a box office flop with Blade Runner. His new project was a fantasy sorcery picture, Legend, starring a young Tom Cruise. And while Hortzberg was working on the film's script in London, he met with another English director, Alan Parker. Like Ridley Scott, Alan Parker had begun directing commercials before branching into feature films. If you go onto YouTube and type in Alan Parker and advertising, and you'll see a collection of his most memorable ads. Parker's first Hollywood film was the Oscar-winning Midnight Express, and then later he did the hit musical Fame, and so people were offering Parker all sorts of projects. So Parker was offered Hortzberg's novel, and while they were chatting, Hortzberg mentioned De Palma's suggestion of relocating the story to New Orleans. Parker wisely absorbed the opinion and used that city's unique iconography to anchor the book's ominous mood and queasy atmosphere. Yeah, I, everything was filmed where it should have taken place, you know. I don't know why we do that sometimes. I mean, you know, you can be in a tiny little uh, back alleyway or a back, back room somewhere and you think, well, why are we here and not on a soundstage in Burbank, you know, somewhere. Truth be it never looks the same, however brilliantly you art direct it. But to me, it's more than that. It's actually, I have to feel it, I have to smell it in order for it, for it to be real. I always feel comfortable in real, real locations, even though it's infinitely more difficult to do than being in the comfort of a controlled s uh, set. The film does enjoy some very striking images, not least of which is the recurring use of an old-fashioned elevator, with its wrought iron doors being pulled shut and stark shadows stretching out across an open floor. Then there is the use of fans as they slowly turn back and forth in the half-light, squeaking ever so gently, all the time suggesting something rather menacing is about to happen. All of which will be down to the director, Parker, his regular collaborators, cinematographer Michael Sarazen, production designer Brian Morris, and editor Jerry Hamling. And it is to Hamling, a six-time Oscar nominee, whom we must give the lion's share of the credit for the film's most audacious sequence. It's a sex scene involving Mickey Rourke and a then 18-year-old Lisa Bonet. It caused considerable controversy, not especially because of the nudity, but because of the way Hamling edited it. That and the amount of blood involved. So much blood, in fact, that the film was slapped with an X rating, and in the end, up to 20 seconds had to be cut in order to secure an OR certificate. So, if you haven't seen the movie, be warned. It's still a bit of a shocker. And if you have seen the movie, you might want to take a look at a short article I've written on my website which discusses the editing in greater detail. On top of that, there is the music. Considering this is an Alan Parker movie, I don't think anyone should be surprised by the importance music plays. After all, this is the man who made Bugsy Malone, Fame, Pink Floyd The Wall, Evita and The Commitments. The original score for Angel Heart was composed by Trevor Jones, 
who later went on to do part of the soundtrack to Last of the Mohicans. Here, he collaborated with the great jazz saxophonist Courtney Pine to create a terrifically atmospheric score. Using a synthesizer and a polyphonic digital sampling system, Jones lays out a wide open space for Pine to improvise a series of superb sax solos. As well as that, Parker chose to include a number of classic blues and R&B performances, which, given the film's setting, may seem like another easy decision. But again, it is a good one. So, you get to hear a few bars of Bessie Smith singing Honeyman Blues. I've got the blues and it's all about my honeyman. Then Laverne Baker doing an extremely sultry Soul on Fire. You set my soul on fire And I really have my fun And surrounding all that, you have the old-timer Glenn Gray crooning Girl of my dreams, I love you This tune, and its several variants, linger about the back of the soundtrack like some sort of nightmare echo all of which may have distracted you from the fact that I have barely mentioned the cast and the storyline. And the reason for that should be as obvious as the film's so-called twist ending. 